This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 171 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. We're back after a brief hiatus and we'll make up for lost time by talking about two weeks of results for Georgia State on the baseball diamond, as well as dive into the latest transfer news for both football and basketball. But first, we got to talk about it. This crazy NCAA tournament these past couple weeks. Gentlemen, uh, revelations or realizations you've come across in our uh, chaotic past couple weeks of basketball action. I mean, we did kind of talk about like it was kind of wide open. I wasn't necessarily expecting some of the hijinks that went down, but yeah, I had Purdue losing in the second round, which I had called on the pod. So when they lost in the first round, like it was still jarring because like Fairleigh Dickinson's being the 16 seed, the second one ever to beat a one seed was still like on its own, this huge event in sports. But like that one, I, I didn't feel like they were that safe of a team to go far, you know. Arizona, I had going to the championship games, so them losing to Princeton in the first round, another shocking one. Uh, you saw it all around. It's uh, as the transfer portal has let more talent go around, and as the COVID years have let more and more players stick around with the same team, particularly at the lower levels, because they're not necessarily playing that game of jumping school to school, maybe as they, they are some of the higher programs. You've had a lot of good teams stick together, and you've had good coaches have good players stick with them and so i guess it shouldn't be all that shocking um and it's been a lot of fun you know san diego state was probably on like a two seed line the year the tournament got canceled they had a really good team that of all of the we'll never know what happened it's the biggest bummer for like them and dayton because they had really good teams that year that didn't get a chance to duke it out and now san diego state has found their way to the final four which they might have done that year you know, now they don't have to wonder. They don't have to agonize about it. They've fought their way back. They beat Alabama. They made it to the final four as one of the surprises. And then FAU is obviously probably the biggest one, but I mean, like the big storyline there is like this nine seed has made the final four, but like folks, they were way underseeded. And so I think it's the committee making more of a Cinderella than there is because it was a really good team. It was the, should have been like a six, seven seed at a bare minimum and up being a nine seed. So I guess it's not really that surprising to me in the grand scheme of things. Cause I noted them like through the year, like, Oh, they're, they're good. They're, but certainly still impressive that they've been able to stack the wins they've been able to get together. And now kind of making it's the first since like George Mason, maybe since Butler to make the final four. That's like, man, that school made a final four. It has been a shocking tournament. Um, I feel like I had, I had it being a wacky tournament. Like we, we definitely had it being a wacky tournament last week or two weeks ago, but I don't think that we thought it would be like this. It's been great. You know, I, a few weeks ago, I saw somebody say that they, you know, didn't want to release a bracket because they just couldn't focus on the games. And I'm like, I have the absolute opposite opinion. Like the games themselves have been really fun. You know, the bracket has been absolutely decimated in the best way. Um, it's funny it's funny you mentioned the purdue thing because I, you know you know that i said that same day that a 16 would beat a one seed 
at some point in the future. And like I I, I want to be clear. I am not saying that I called my shot because I specifically did not think that that would happen in this tournament when I said it. But I did think that the conditions kind of were right for it. So to be at dinner and to get a text like, oh, Purdue is still not winning in this game. I was like, okay, all right, before I leave to go to another place, let me pull out my phone and see what's going on. Yeah, I was following it all, just living in front of my TV those two days. And so I kind of took on the duty for, I guess, David as well as some other people. Like, I was the one nudging, like, hey, you might want to find this on your TV, guys. Like, this is getting to the nitty gritty in this game. And it was it was crazy because it just anytime you've got like a a mid major versus a power five the 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 style of play or like the I guess the narrative flow of the game always feels the same to me. Um, and I like I saw this when Georgia State played like Kansas State a few years ago when they played Auburn a few years ago. Um, you know they'll get they'll have a really good first half, keep it close. You know there'll be a high energy second half, and then once you get to about like six minutes left in the game, it happened with Georgia State Gonzaga last year. Yep, it's it about happened. ten minutes through. Absolutely. Once you get to like that, yeah, about ten minutes left in the second half, halfway through the second half, either one of two things happens. The high major will just have the talent went out, you know. I think in that Kansas State game back in like 2017, I think Kansas State went on like a 23 to three run or something to finish the game. Um, they they won by a very small amount, but like Georgia State was winning in most of that game. Um, or the the mid major will just find a basket cutting through the drought that they're in, and that's what Farley Dickinson did. Like it, it was impressive to watch but it was just it it was astonishing you know like i'm sure i could find other colorful things to say about san diego state and you know i agree with you that fau should absolutely not have been a nine seed but when we think back to this tournament regardless of who wins it's gonna be about the other 16 over one upset i mean it is to me, the biggest upset in basketball, like Chaminade, Virginia was, is the one that like stands out historically because it's a small Hawaiian school, whatever. And it's kind of brought on the lore of the Maui Invitational and, you know, every couple of years they're in it. And it's a fun little story. This is at least on that part for me because like fairly Dickinson, smallest by average height in this in division one going up against Zach Eady, tallest player, basically in college basketball, probably going to be national player of the year because they vote on those things before the tournament. Um, they were terrible defensive team by efficiency numbers all year, but their press and just the way they were going at Purdue was affecting a one seed, you know, a team with that type of pedigree. And they weren't even supposed to be in the tournament. They lost in the championship game of the NEC tourney to Merrimack, who was not eligible for another year because of the four year transition rule for programs aging up from division two and so they weren't even the nec champion they were just the at-large representative or the uh auto bid representative for the like it you couldn't write all of the different parts of it into a script it would be too unbelievable that would not be going to camera if you made it into a film um and obviously already the fairly dickinson coaches replaced rick patino at iona after he left for st john's so, yeah, I mean, all of it just feels like 
one of those magic moments that this month is built for. Super does, you know, I mean, I don't even know what else to say about it just because it has been a phenomenal month with just some great basketball. I'll, I'll tell you what else to say. You knew where Fairly Dickinson was if you listened to the last pod before the tournament when this was all kicking off because we played that game and you knew it was in New Jersey. And so you had some idea. It was like, what is Fairly Dickinson? You listeners to this podcast at least were like, it is a school in New Jersey. And you could at least be like, yeah, I knew what Fairly Dickinson was. So you're welcome. It was fun. like I saw some memes after Prince, uh, Princeton also got their upset. I saw some memes about like New Jersey is the state with the best upsets or something to that effect and i was like yeah see i knew that i i paid attention because i was on the thursday night podcast two weeks ago just a little accountability um Furman over virginia absolutely nailed that upset uh miami over drake or uh, burying the lead me. burying the oh. lead a little bit that was an incredible upset yes but yes if the one 16 game doesn't happen. That's probably the moment in the first round. Like the sequence there for Furman to win that game on the inexplicable turnover, going crazy, the three from the guy who had missed, I think, like his last 15 threes. Absolutely peak March as well. Um, Drake did not beat Miami, didn't get that one. And I feel like my biggest swing, my biggest miss in uh, retrospect, Montana State did not upset Kansas State. Kansas State did not lose until the Elite Eight. I want to say that I like the science on what I went with that upset anyway. You know, it was about like, hey, if these two top players for Kansas State, Noel and John um, Keontae Johnson, don't go off, they've got a shot. I liked the theory, but obviously Marquise Noel, maybe the one <laughs> player that has stood out is just going absolutely crazy in the tournament. He was not off his game. He was incredibly on his game in every of the games they played and was very close to bringing them all the way to the Final Four. He must have heard you because Sun Belt legend. I I have not seen a guard performance like that in a while. You know, like there's been some good performances the last couple of years, but he really put that team on the, his back and you know, kind of spurred an incredible run. Um, I'm surprised that we're not sitting here talking about them in the final four, but um, I think you're right. Like I also had that upset originally, um, and it just didn't. You know, didn't materialize totally fine, but I did. I definitely did not have Kansas State going this far for very similar reasons. But I'm glad. Like it was fun. They, like their run, very fun. Yeah, and happy to be wrong. It was like they're not a mid major at all. Like they're not a, like a small program. It's not like a scrappy story. But like he is a fun story, and it's a first year head coach. It's a group where I think basically everyone is a transfer, which is a new thing. It would have been a like the first all-transfer roster to make a Final Four, which would have been, you know, that's coming in this era. And sure. I don't know. It's not like a looming power conference team where it's like, oh, the vaunted, hated Kansas State. Like, still a rootable program for the, uh, you know, in the Big 12. And so it's kind of a weird little, not a Cinderella at all, but not like the, like an FAU Kansas State. It was not like a blowout where it's like, all of the love was going FAU's way. Like there was plenty of reason to also like the power conference team in that, which was a very interesting dynamic. Yeah. Cinderella versus the underdog. It's a good story for sure. For sure. And, uh, you know, at this point, UConn probably the favorite to win it all, but I wouldn't put any money on that because this tournament has been bonkers. And so Toronto, next time we talk, we're going to be talking about how FAU cut down the nets and the absolute 
incredible story. And Conference USA won all three of the postseason tournaments, the NCAA, the NIT, and the uh, CBI, or whatever it's called nowadays. That would honestly be incredible for them. And also, all of the schools would be leaving. Exactly. That's the best part. Going to the American. Conference USA would still get the money, and then all of the schools would just leave. So, yeah, I feel like that's a win-win scenario for that conference, I suppose. After all the squabbling with the Sunbelt schools and having to pay excess exit penalty fees to get here, you know, the three that left Conference USA, it's a totally different situation now where with not any, you know, it's not like a giving situation. FAU would love to take it if they could. I think the number that I saw right now is like $10 million is going to Conference USA based on this run that they are leaving behind that is going to Conference USA because they get the coefficient money. Um, Completely different thing where they are leaving, you know, Conference USA is going to love FAU leaving at this point. They're Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Have a nice trip. You know, enjoy your new foes. Like, we're good now. We're, We're square. All right. Well, in some closer-to-home basketball news, we did get a transfer to the men's basketball team. Julian Mackey commits to Georgia State from Northeast Oklahoma A&M, a junior college. He had previously signed for Niagara out of high school, and his hometown is Grayson, right here in the Peach State. He is a 6'4 combo guard, and in 2022-2023, Mackey averaged 20.2 points per game, 5 rebounds a game, and 3.9 assists a game, making 42.8% of his three-pointers. Mackey joins with the transfer to Nari Lane and incoming freshman signees Deshaun Ferguson and DK Manuel in this recruiting class and three scholarships still remain available for Jonas Hayes and staff. 42.8% from three. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Thoughts yeah. on Mackey? Again, kind of the same thing with Lane when he got announced. See if you can detect what Jonas Hayes and his staff thought that the team needed to add in the offseason. The answer is, is Jordan immediately picked out three-point shooting. Another absolute sharpshooter. And not just that, he can create his own shot. I don't expect a guy to come from the junior college ranks and also, you know, average 20.2 points per game at Georgia State next year. Obviously, if he does that, the chances of a very good season go up. But more than just like, okay, we want you to come in and do this. Georgia State was missing that dimension last year where they could have a guy where like down the line of you were looking like who could drop 40 on any given night and probably Dewan, maybe Collins, Jaheem had a big game. Adding a guy who's scored at 40 in a game means you've got someone who's comfortable, who can create his own shot, who can run the offense. And, you know, more than not making threes, or at least on the same level as not making threes, I think what Georgia State struggled with is just the lapses where they couldn't go to any single person to just get a shot, to stop a run to get the momentum back on the offensive side of the ball. And I think with Mackey, you're adding a guy that you feel comfortable could add that dimension. And so the shooting's a plus and just the general scoring. And, you know, you like his size, see what he can add also on the defensive end. Kind of the same way with Lane, where you've added two nice-sized wings, and I think you're looking more at what they've done offensively, but they profile well to do – good work defensively. And I think given what we saw and, you know, what Jonas tried to install in year one, I don't doubt that they think they can get something more defensively because I still think that's going to be kind of a, you've got to bring that part of your game too with Jonas as the coach. 
I agree. I think uh, the addition of Mackie really tells me that I believe that Jonas Hayes, Coach Hayes, wants to go smaller next year. And now it's weird to say that because I feel like there are talented bigs on the team. And, you know, you and I all year this past season said, you know, something needs to happen to where the bigs need to find a way to improve. And that's definitely true, but I don't know. I feel like this first off season where it, you know, the, the first stable off season, if you will, um, you, there's a very clear emphasis, at least to me on shooting, on getting ample scoring on finding guys who are on, not on the smaller side, but you know, he's looking for guards like six, four is, you know, plenty tall, obviously, but it's still a guard. You know, he, I don't think he's looking for big men to try to be the focal point. Whereas I think last year, if you looked at who was on the roster, it really did feel like the big men were going to be the feature point. And, you know, obviously if you want to play deep into March, if you want to play, you know, uh, in, in the NCAA tournament, you're going to need to emphasize your guard play. But coming into the year, I think the guards had a little bit more questions than the big men did. And I guess as the year went on, that kind of flip-flopped. And, you know, maybe Coach Hayes looked at that and said, okay, we're going to try to try something different with the guards. We're going to be try to have some more stability. We're going to have better shooting. You know, we're going to try to get our inside-out game going. Um, and, I mean, that's what I see with this move. You know, anytime you can add shooting to a lineup that has a big that, you know, might be able to beat some guys up down low like Hudson and Namoko. And, you know, when you've got a guy who can drive like Dwan, it just adds a different element to the offense that, you know, at times last year was definitely missing. You know, like there were there were times where Georgia State was doing well on the inside, but terrible outside. And there were times where Georgia State was doing well on the outside, but terrible on the inside. So, you know, just getting playmakers. Like we talked about it in football all the time, just getting playmakers. That's the most important thing right now. And I think – also, just guys are starting to be more specialized in roles. They're going to be able to, and to where it's like, I don't know, maybe you're still going to see some four out and five out sets, but less of it. I think you're going to say to Jaheim, like, we really want you to work on your post game, love the mid range stuff. We don't need you to be outside as a perimeter threat because you've brought in already, with still three scholarships to give away, two guys who are very solid three-point shooters. And you feel like, especially with less pressure on their back, you can get some more production out of Jermaine and Brendan Tucker as well from beyond the arc. Colin Moore obviously showed. So, you know, with instead of saying Brendan Tucker and Jermaine Mann are the kind of focal points from the perimeter offense, there may be now you're, with the current roster, fourth and fifth options there. And they're going to be fresher because probably everyone is going to be able to play less minutes that was, you know, playing upwards of 35 minutes by the end of this past year, because you're going to have a pretty, I don't know how deep they're going to go, but you're adding guys without saying like, okay, Brandon Tucker's never going to play again. Like, I feel like you've added two guards and I still think everyone who played, you know, Brendan's still going to have a role. Jermaine's still going to have a role. DeWan's obviously still going to have a role. Colin's still going to have a role. So I think two guys you add to the rotation that mean that you're going to have more of a chance of having more shooters around Dewan, letting the bigs be 
front court guys be down low, be in the mid range. It's going to make everything work better and kind of help the offense find its flow better. Obviously time will tell. And I still think at least one, maybe two bigs get added with the final scholarships. Uh, We'll wait to see on the news on that stuff. Obviously that stuff is still transpiring, but I think that, you know, like I said at the start, like obviously there was a need and with the two signings of the recruiting class after the season ended, seems pretty clear that Jonas kind of agreed with where everyone's eyes told them was the need, adding some shooting, adding some scoring. And you've got that. You feel like the offense is going to be in a better place already. And there's still two freshmen that we are going to see how they play the college level and three more scholarships to give away to continue to add to the room. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I hamper depth on this podcast more than I should, but you know, deep rotations in college basketball, they do matter. You know, you don't have to play 12 guys a game, obviously, but it's, it's very funny to me, you know, when we get into late February, you know, get into March when teams are like, yeah, we play six guys, you know, mostly five guys. And it's like, I mean, unless you just have the most elite talent that can stay, you know, fresh when they need to be, it is really hard to win with that few guys. So if, you know, you're in a situation where a guy like Brendan Tucker and Jermaine Mann are, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth option, you probably have a good team. And that's what Coach Hayes is trying to build. Yeah. And obviously he went a little bit smaller at times by the end of this year. And I don't know that we were sure if it was like a long-term strategy, like Ron Hunter definitely liked a smaller rotation it felt a little bit by necessity because you were down some guys by injury. You know, Evan Johnson was no longer playing at all. So, you know, you're basically down to Dewan as the only real point guard that was playing any minutes. So he was playing 38 a game when he was healthy. And, you know, I think, I don't know if we're going to see it expand to like 10, 11 guys a game, but I, I do think that, you know, my hunch is some of the, smaller rotation was by necessity you know, just on the fly doing what they could just to have a best chance in those games i thought it was interesting that he went that way like it just is a note of just like first year coach like in that moment i thought it was noteworthy and it did help them out in that very small spurt of games like the georgia southern game where going with those lineups the best lineup for as long as he could i think is what helped win that game against southern and they were in the game against you know southern missed that week as well Uh, but long-term, I don't know if that's going to continue. Obviously, we'll see how that plays out. This is the fun time where it's just like you don't really know what anyone's going to bring, but you see the potential for all of the signees that come in, and so it's kind of the the high point because it's still all about like in your head, you're thinking about who's going to be posting that corner, hitting threes all day, you know, what it's going to mean for the guys that are coming back. It's it's a fun time as you're like looking forward to the season, which is still – you know, I, I think I'm through the point where it's like, man, that season was not fun at all. And I'm back to like, all right, bring on October, November. Like, let's see this basketball team in flow. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like once Georgia State got eliminated from the Sunbelt tournament, I was like, oh, well, that sucked. But, you know, we, we've talked about the expectations that come with playing at the school. You know, we're not going to sit here and say that they should be top three in the Sunbelt you know, heading into October, November, whenever it starts. But I mean, that's going to have to start be happening soon. That's, that is how expectations at the school usually go. So um, I, it's really, 
really easy to flip the page and get excited for next year. And I mean, the transfer portal, the, the one of the worst parts about the transfer portal, seriously is, you know, the, there are a lot of guys who get said some things and there's a lot of hope that goes around that doesn't necessarily materialize. Um, everybody is an all-star and everybody's an all conference player, you know, in February and whenever the transfer portal is in football, but when it comes to playing on the court and when it comes to playing on the field after that, obviously that's not the case. So, you know, we'll see when games really start. All right. So speaking of transfers, let's go ahead and move to football. Lehigh inside linebacker Nate Norris has joined the program. He'll be the team's Aubrey Payne replacement, as this will be his seventh collegiate season. He was a second-team All-Patriot League honoree in 2022, finishing second on the Mountain Hawks with 83 tackles and three and a half sacks. He joins former teammate safety Taiji Leach, who joined GSU in the December signing window. And hot off the Twitter presses, Alabama State offensive lineman Torian Stafford announced in about an hour before we sat down to record this podcast that he'd be committing to Georgia State. Stafford is a versatile interior offensive lineman who logged snaps at center and both guard positions in 2022. He is a grad transfer that will have one more year of eligibility. So, gentlemen, thoughts on these two new enrollees? Here I go hammering that depth word again because Stafford, I, I mean, the offensive line. Was it bad last year by any stretch? They obviously led the Sun Belt um, in rushing. By the end of the year, it was campered. Yeah, I was about to say, by the end of the year, it was stuck together with some duct tape, some glue, some pieces of paper, and some feathers. So, you know, if you could get five healthy offensive linemen, that would be great. But if you have six, seven, maybe eight playable offensive linemen, startable offensive linemen that can play 12, 13 games over a full football season, that's even better. And so this is absolutely, this is a big boy, you know, like we're, we're talking about a guy who's going to be really fighting in those trenches. And that's something that Georgia state needed last year. And so it's good to see that it was addressed. Yeah. This to me, in addition to the additions, from December says to me, coach Elliot is saying we aren't going to fail this year because we don't have enough offensive linemen and we don't have enough offensive line depth. I just feel like you probably could have looked at who they already had is like, all right, here's your starting five. And even here's a couple of guys that aren't going to start that we feel could probably play, but it got tested last year and you know, guys got forced into roles. They weren't necessarily ready for guys were playing out of position along the offensive line. And so, this is another addition in the camp of just like not letting the same thing beat you two years in a row, which I think especially it being the offensive line and that being coach Elliott's position makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it did take away from what was a strength where you had so much stability is the first year since like maybe the 2018 season, maybe before then that there wasn't that, you know, you set and forget your, starting five offensive linemen and Georgia state struggled as a result of that. And so bringing in some more guys to where you trust them to perform, but also maybe there's going to be a guy or two that is pushed down the depth chart that you can trust now in a better spot you know, than maybe was the case this past year because injuries could crop up again. Uh, I feel like the other thing here with Stafford is that he's played center at the collegiate level. And I feel like with Malik leaving like right now, I don't know that there's any set starting 
spots lined up, but I feel like you could bank on Ferris, the Central Michigan transfer, probably going to play right guard. Seems like they that's what they brought him in to do. Sounded like from what Coach Elliott said after the spring game that Travis Glover had had a really good spring, was back outside, and he also liked what Montavious Cunningham had done and said he's going to be a good player. So maybe if you just wanted, for the sake of simplicity, say that those are your starting tackles, you still kind of had two spots. And you still had options there. Lamar Robinson, the Norfolk State transfers, another person that Coach Elliott had good things to say about after the spring game. So maybe he, you could say, is the left guard or Luis Cristobal, who played there a lot of last year. Center hadn't really had anyone you could point to that had had a lot of experience where you're like, yeah, that's who could play there for sure. So now I think you can look at it as you know, right now in my head, that's the starting five offensive linemen. And a good spot to be in, better spot to be in, especially because you did lose Pat Bartley. You did lose Malik Sumter. And so the worst thing that could happen after not a great offensive line season is having even less answers and even less that confidence in who's going to go in there and perform. But you added now two guys in the interior with a lot of college experience in Ferris and now in Stafford. And so a little more comfortability there. And then the other one, uh, third transfer in this period of time was Rico Arnold's a wide receiver who transferred from UMass. He had previously spent some time at Charlotte and then transferred to UMass, and now he's at Georgia State uh, from Athens, originally out of high school. Guy that doesn't have a ton of, you know, he had 461 yards in 2021 and three touchdowns at UMass. He was injured this past year, but he's a guy that's, been around a lot, had a lot of experience in a couple of different programs, coming back to Georgia with a room where even with the guys you've added, you don't necessarily feel like for sure you could say this is who's going to play this many snaps. Never a bad thing to add options. And I think the other common thing with Norris, with Arnold, and also with Stafford is, and with you know Swint extended all the way through all of the guys they brought in in the transfer portal. It's a lot of guys who've played a lot of football. And for a team last year that struggled in those key moments in the second half with a lead, I think the other big takeaway from the entire transfer portal time this offseason and leading up through these is that Coach Elliott added a lot of guys who played a lot, who maybe he's going to be able to feel comfortable leaning on in leadership roles informally or formally. And, you know, Norris may be the key example of that. Like we, like in Jordan's read, he's like, he's the seven year guy. Like he's seen it all and kind of the same thing with Stafford and with Arnold as well, where they've been in college football a long time. That experience is important. That experience is very key. Um, you know, you saw like you mentioned last year, there were guys who were put in roles who just didn't, they, it's not that they don't have talent. They just didn't step up because college football moves very fast for some guys. A lot of doing the right thing in college football is simply just being in the right spot and knowing kind of what is coming. And that is something that Georgia State struggled with last year. But, you know, getting in a guy like Norris who, you know, you expect to be not necessarily a feature on the outside or, you know, we don't know what his position in the offense is going to be, but, you know, more solid pass catching options is important. Like that's, you want to make sure that guys like Arnold are able to be 
weapons for you when they transfer over. You want to make sure that guys who you're bringing onto your team have solid experience, have, you know, the ability to be on the bench if they start on the bench in the early part of the year. But, you know, if there's an injury and get, they need to be thrust into action. You, you like guys with those experience because that, helps you be sure that your offense is going to stay the same, that your defense is going to stay the same, you know, and you kind of mentioned it too with Nate Norris, obviously Georgia state in the linebacking group last year was just decimated by injuries and ineffective play. But you know, he's another guy. If you've got guys with experience who've played football, you know, plug and play them in your scheme. And, you know, maybe they don't have the same level of top flight talent, you know, like when Blake Carroll went down last year, obviously there wasn't a Blake Carroll waiting on the bench for Georgia state. If there was, they would have been playing. But when you have a guy like Norris who can just come in and still play at an adequate level, it probably stops you from losing some of those games in the second half last year. So any any extra bit of experience where a guy knows how to slow slow down the game and just kind of change things to whoever the opponent is that that's really big. And for all the times in between, like, you know, going through summer workouts, going through fall camp, being there on the sideline during games like. I don't know because they brought in, you know, Tavian Brown inside linebacker from Colorado State. I still think you look at guys like Jordan Jones and Justin Abraham and think you saw flashes to where they could take a step. Jordan Menziel is back. Blake Carroll is also back. It's just, you know, he is coming off an injury. So I don't know that at this point you can say for sure what he's going to do on the field in 2023. So I don't know where Norris exactly fits in as far as reps go, but the common threat and same with Stafford. Like I'm saying he's the starting center. Might not be, might just be a deaf piece. You might see someone else take that spot. I just think that the common thread here and also with guys like, you know, Swint, Shikari Carter, and, you know, the other transfers they brought in is that whatever they do on the field, it's almost as important what they do before the lights come on to add just that additional layer of, if you want to call it professionalism, just call it the mentality. I think that's what was missing more than like stuff on the X's and O's side is just that ability to meet those moments and adding guys like that, that have played so much football and been around football so long can only help you in that. All right. And last, but certainly not least this week, baseball, we've got a lot of catching up to do first off home sweep against Troy two weekends ago to open Sunbelt play was followed by a one and two weekend in Boone last weekend against Appalachian state. They also played each of the last two Tuesdays, at Clouray Field, home of the Gwinnett Stripers, losing to Georgia 8-3 on March 21st and beating Georgia Tech 12-11 in 14 innings. 14 this past Tuesday, March 28th. So, gentlemen, thoughts on the last couple weeks for the Buslop boys? Well, they're still hitting homers, so that's good. Um, I think I saw prior to yesterday's game against Georgia Tech that they were second in the Sun Belt in homers with 55, two behind Old Dominion, who was leading. Um, I mean, the bullpen has still been a problem, um, unfortunately. It's not been as bad, but it has not been good. And that is still something that needs to be cleaned up. So, you know, I like the offense. It's They're scoring runs. Um, and it, you wish the pitching would help them out a little bit more. Um, but yeah, the bullpen still definitely needs to be cleaned up a little bit because it, I mean, it's cost them, it cost them at least the Friday game, I believe against App state. Um, 
That, that was more the start of the, the one rare time where Joseph Brandon or Ryan Watson didn't have a great start. And that is kind of the thing with the pitching staff is like, if you can bank on them keeping you in games, you feel good about a chance of winning every series you're in because they're two five-year senior guys that you really trust as the Friday and Saturday options. And more often than not this year, they've given you a chance. And it was kind of the first start against App where Joseph just kind of had a bad outing. It happens, especially with how much pressure might be on each of them to perform. You could understand if they're not going to have it every single time they go out there. But that is kind of where you're at, where Mason Patel hasn't pitched in a few weeks. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but obviously he's been unavailable. And that means your Sunday starter is kind of turned into a couple of different guys. They're trying to find that out. And that pushes, you know, I think some of those guys were going to be in the mix for being the Tuesday, Wednesday starter because they've been called up to a more important role. That's also in a little influx. And so, you know, the teams that Georgia State be looking to top in the Sun Belt standings. I don't know the ins and outs of all the programs, but I would imagine the top teams in the conference feel a lot more comfortable about, say, their Sunday starter. And even if they're experimenting more and giving guys some shots in the midweek games, I feel like they have a little bit more assuredness on like what is going to happen on any given start. And I just think there's inconsistency and you're just not really sure who's going to spring a leak this time. And you're having just, throw guys out there and say, all right, this is your game right now. You've got to give us a couple innings. And it's been a bit of a struggle. Um, I don't know any more specific way to cite this person. I just know them as hardball fan online. In the last 16 games, Georgia State baseball is averaging 10 runs a game. They are eight and eight in that stretch. And it's a great stat because it spells out exactly what the problem has been. It's just like runs and up in a problem. And it's won them a, a handful of those games but if you're averaging 10 runs a game in any extended stretch you've got to be over 500 you can't be at 500 I mean I think that spells it out more than anything else it's just the offense is doing a lot and it's like we've said I, they're going to be the leader the, the pitching is gonna have to lead you a little bit further and it costs them the Sunday game against that for sure uh the, mid, the midweek, like I say, like, I don't want to say I'm like punning on the midweek games right now because you can still win them. Obviously, you went and beat a good Georgia Tech team on Tuesday this week. But Georgia State's in such a weird spot that, like, as compressed as it's been, you know, with guys getting thrust into the Sunday pitching roles and throwing a lot of innings because they're having to throw maybe a little bit more because they're having to cover the full nine innings on both the Sunday and the Tuesday, Wednesday games. Like I'm not saying I'm chalking those up as losses the rest of the year, but it's kind of a, a real creaky, creaky game uh, situation. So I'm not really going to take, put much stock into the Tuesdays until there's a little bit more consistency with the, the weekend rotation, just because it is a little bit up in the air right now. Um, but certainly you look at that Sunday game against app as a missed opportunity and, Given that you lost that one, I think it was very, 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 very important that you found a way to win in 14 against Georgia Tech because, you know, having a back-to-back game where you lose one 15-14 and then you win one 12-11 in 14 innings, like, if you're going to have a stretch of games like that, you really want Lady Luck to give you a solid and at least split that. Because I feel like if we're sitting here talking about back-to-back losses in that fashion or three straight losses with the last two coming in that way, that's just, you know, hard to just deal with. So I think 
it at least is like a sigh of relief when you're able to beat Georgia Tech in that manner. The interesting thing too, with you know, regards to the offense and just kind of the stretches, I think last year you saw an offense is broke out the word. Um, you know, they kind of showed us what they really could do and they were hitting home runs. But, you know, by this point in the schedule, the offense stopped scoring at this rate. But this year they've actually kept it up. So you really can see that get any amount of pitching. And, you know, we're talking about a completely different season so far. And it, it's it's not been bad. You know, I, I want to be very clear about that. It has not been bad. I would not count. I would not call this season so far bad. I think 14 and 11 is still a good spot for where Georgia State has been. Um, you know, always something to improve, of course, of course. But the thing about it is that conference play is the only thing that matters for them. It, no, that's not true. Conference thing is what matters most for them. And it's a tough conference. So they're going to need to be scoring 10 runs a game in the Sun Belt. You know, they're going to need to host Coastal this upcoming weekend and, you know, show that they can get nine innings worth of outs or eight innings if they're winning. They need to show that they can still be scoring, you know, eight, nine, ten runs a game. And, you know, it doesn't get easier after that. I think you're absolutely spot on about, you know, dropping that App State game but then coming back and beating a team like Georgia Tech on the Tuesday and just really grinding out that 14-inning win. Just because, you know, baseball is a game specifically where, yeah, there's a lot of luck involved, but – Sometimes you just need to have a good mojo going, and that's all that it takes to really get get on a heater. So the Panthers are now fourteen and eleven on the year, and four and two in Sun Belt as they welcome number nineteen Coastal Carolina for three this weekend in Atlanta. The Chanticleers are fifteen and seven, and also four and two in conference, and are heading into this series fresh off a series win over Texas State and a twelve to seven win over number thirteen UNC. Gentlemen, thoughts on Coastal? Yeah, so kind of picking up on what David was just talking about, like I think they're in a good spot. I think you would take four and two the first two weekends. I think it feels a little bit more hollow because you swept Troy, and we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about that. Kind of ties into what I would say about this series, which is that it's a challenge, but you swept a good Troy team last time you played at home, so you'd at least feel pretty good about your chances there just as far as like we know this team mashes and it's a hitter's paradise really down at the GSU baseball complex. But I think that it feels worse than it maybe should because you lost two or three this past weekend. And if you win that series, first of all, you still haven't lost a series in conference play, but five and one totally different in that context because you know, of what it's where it stands, you know, winning on the road, all that. This is going to be a real test. Also an opportunity because you beat a ranked coastal team two or three times. Probably you, you look at just winning this series is absolutely a great outcome. It's going to do good numbers for your RPI. It's also going to make people notice because I still think that Georgia state's got the hurdle to climb as far as like, yes, I think that they have raised the standard from certainly from when coach Stromdahl got here and where the program had gotten to in coach Frady's last few years in Atlanta. But it's still a team that's only ever been to one NCAA regional in 2009. And so it's not going to garner much that you win a home series, even against a good Troy team, if you sweep a good Troy team at home. That's not really going to move the needle because it's, you haven't earned that level of like 
putting yourself on the map, which Coastal has done because they literally won the College World Series in the last six years. This would be a series that could add to that, where it's another series where it's like, all right, this team is put together. You know, they played two home series against two good teams, one of whom is in the top 25, and they won both of them. Like that is continuing to add to that reputation and continue to, you can build on that. And obviously, and like I said, at least in one other instance on this pod, I still think to really change that and really work your way up the stand standings, you're going to have to win road series. You're going to have to go do better than you were able to do last weekend in Boone. But the only thing you can do right now is worry about these next three games in front of you against Coastal Carolina. And you know, they absolutely mashed. They dropped 19 and 13 on a good Texas State team last weekend in back-to-back games. And they scored eight in the finale and just lost. They got outscored in that one. Texas State was able to at least salvage one in that series. And you know that's the weekend after they hosted Southern Miss and took two or three from them. So this isn't going to be your weekend where it's like, all right, maybe we, scoring 12 is going to be enough, even if the pitching's got an issue. Like I think to win this series against Coastal, the pitching's going to have to find something particularly, you know, if you get your good starts from Joseph Brandon and Ryan Watson on Friday and Saturday, that's at least, you know, you can point to that as just, a a lot of the way there because if you get good quality starts in those games that covers most of the innings and if if all you do is take care of business those first two days and you know you can't get the sweep on sunday that would still be a result um but past that you're going to need guys to less nervy late innings i would say you know whether that's the friday the saturday the sunday you know more guys are just going to have to start carving out those later inning rules because it's been a little bit patchwork. It's been a little bit inconsistent and, you know, whether they're protecting a five run lead or a one run lead recently, it's not really felt that different. And I think you want to get to where you can at least feel like, all right, they're up five right now. They should be able to get this one over the line. It's been a little bit nervy in those situations and they've dropped a few of those games in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Certainly that's the biggest thing they got to improve on because it kind of works the other way with Coastal where five-run deficits don't mean a ton to their offense because they can score in bunches. And they score in a variety of waves. You know, they are a little bit further back in the Sun Belt in home runs. Um, so that means they're putting together good at-bats. They're walking a lot. They're, you know, playing small balls, sack bunts, you know, finding balls. Balls are landing in the gap. And, you know, to kind of focus on the pitching, I think – Coastal's pitching numbers kind of don't really tell the whole story of what they've been because, I mean, I think this is a good team. Like, if you look at the Sun Belt, they're ranked lower in the Sun Belt in specifically home runs allowed, for example. But at the same time, though, they're not allowing teams to score and they're in that upper third area in runs allowed. So, you know, you kind of see that they're if guys are scoring against that pitching staff, it might be a situation where they're just hitting solo. And, you know, I, I think the pitching staff, it's they're good. They're good staff. But I think Georgia State has an opportunity to at least take two games here. And like you said, that would go a long way. It goes a long way for your RPI. It goes a long way for your confidence, like we were talking about earlier. You know, if if they can find a way to get the starting pitching going and to hold a lead at least until the fifth inning, I like Georgia State's chances. I really do. 
And, you know, after kind of a topsy-turvy, you know, they went to Cool Ray, which isn't really a trip, but, you know, you got to go to a different park. Then you go to Boone, you go back to Cool Ray. After this Coastal Series, you play Alabama State at home on Tuesday, April the 4th at 4 p.m. So little stretch where going to be back at home for a week and kind of get back into that rhythm. And then, you know, next week, Everything moves up a day because of Easter. Actually, next weekend's Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, at JMU. So, you know, you'd feel pretty good if you're able to have a winning record through this stretch of games at home. You know, you got four. If you can win two or three and win the Tuesday game against Alabama State, feels like that's, you know, you're three weeks through the Sunbelt schedule and you're still at that point going to be three games over 500 in conference, like especially where things have been in recent years, certainly George State can't be too picky about that in the gauntlet. That is this Sunbelt baseball league. All right. And before we get you out of here this week, of course, we got to talk about everything going on in Georgia state athletics until the next podcast starting today is the release of this podcast. So that is Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We have women's track and field in Austin, Texas for the Texas relays. Again, that's a three day event. Moving on to Friday softball heads to Huntington, West Virginia to face Marshall. That game will be on ESPN plus, And that is at 1 PM beach volleyball faces LMU and then also Hawaii at 2 and 6 p.m., respectively, in Manhattan Beach, California. Baseball hosting Coastal Carolina in the first of that series at 6 p.m. in Panthersville, and that game will be also on ESPN+. Then moving on to Saturday, the 1st of April, we have a whole slew of events in addition to the continuation of the Texas Relays for women's track and field. Women's tennis travels to Troy, at 10 a.m., volleyball takes on the University of North Florida in Atlanta, also at 10 a.m. Men's tennis heads to Charlotte to face Charlotte at 1 p.m. Also at 1 p.m., softball plays their second game versus Marshall. That game again on ESPN+. 2 p.m., beach volleyball plays USC. That's Southern Cal in East meets West in Manhattan Beach, California again. And then at 3 p.m., volleyball hosts Troy in Atlanta. Also at 3 p.m., baseball with their second game of the, se- of the series versus Coastal Carolina. That game also on ESPN+. 5.30 p.m., beach volleyball plays UCLA in Manhattan Beach. And then moving on to Sunday, the second, we've got men's tennis hosting Coastal Carolina Atlanta at 10 a.m. At noon, softball plays the last game of that series against Marshall in Huntington, West Virginia, again on ESPN+. And then at 1 p.m., Baseball finishes out that series with Coastal Carolina also on ESPN+. Moving on to Monday, women's golf heads to Richmond, Kentucky for the Colonel Classic at Eastern Kentucky University. That event goes on through Tuesday as well. And then on Tuesday, baseball plays Alabama State and Atlanta at 4 p.m. And that game will be on WGTJ-FM 97.5. And then finally on Wednesday the 5th, Softball has a doubleheader versus Chattanooga in Atlanta at 3 and 5 p.m. And that'll get us all the way to next week. So get out there, support the Panthers, follow along online. We'll have all of the information and uh, results from baseball and all of their games this week over on Panther Talk. So make sure you check that out. And we will see you in the next episode of the Thursday Night Podcast. Have a great week and go Panthers.